0: I'm a retired real estate broker. I don't do anything anymore. I sit in
1: my room, read, look at television, smoke cigars. I'd still like to work for you. Doing what? I want to be a contractor.
0: Have you done it before? No, sir.
1: Recognise the film? With its B-list cast still to dialogue and forced performances, how could you not? Yet, more than any other film, this is the one that Martin Scorsese says influenced him the most when he went to direct his first masterpiece, Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver was written by Paul Schrader in an extraordinary 10-day burst in the summer of 1972. He was 26 years old. Here he is in 1998 being interviewed by Mark Cousins on the BBC show Scene by Scene, detailing what put him in such a fevered state to write one of the most magnetic, disturbing and controversial films ever to come out of America.
0: I was written a self-therapy and I wrote it in a rather dire period of my life. I was not a screenwriter at that time. I was a critic. And a number of things had gone wrong in my life and uh, ended up in a period where I was drifting, uh, living in a car. And uh, had this pain in my stomach and uh, went to the emergency room and uh, turned out I had a bleeding ulcer and I realized when i was there that i hadn't really spoken to anyone in weeks you know i had just been drifting around and this metaphor of the taxi driver occurred to me that i was like this person in an iron coffin surrounded by people but absolutely alone you know, you know in many ways i wrote that script to put that kind of self-absorption that kind of festering uh masochistic narcissistic anger in a context so i would not become that character
1: Born into a strict Calvinist community in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Schrader did not see his first film until he was in his teens. A synodical decree handed down by church leaders in 1928 had condemned cinema as a worldly amusement, along with card playing, dancing, smoking and drinking. So it was against that pressure cooker existence that Schrader rebelled and escaped to Los Angeles. There he enrolled at the American Film Institute and actually began his career as a critic. But while he immersed himself in cinema, Schrader also spent hours upon hours reading books that had also been forbidden by the elders in his community. Jean-Paul Sartre's Nausea, Albert Camus' The Stranger, and Fyodor Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground. Schrader's aim was to write a script that would take the European existential hero and put him in an American context. But before Schrader typed up one word, an event occurred that ominously foreshadowed a crucial element in his script. On May 15, 1972, as Alabama Governor George Wallace campaigned in Maryland for the Democratic Party presidential nomination, he was shot by Arthur Bremer, a profoundly disturbed 21-year-old man who, until three days prior to shooting Wallace, had kept a diary, detailing his obsession with becoming famous. Alienated from his peers, Bremer was convinced murderous violence was his only avenue.
0: As always seems to be the case with this kind of tragedy, there was no inkling of trouble. Governor Wallace had encountered heckling earlier in the day as he toured the Maryland suburbs of Washington, but the crowd at Laurel seemed receptive and friendly. Governor Wallace had just finished speaking and had taken off his coat, was shaking hands when four or five shots were fired, two of them recorded in this film by ABC News cameraman Charlie Jones.
1: Schrader initially offered a script to Brian De Palma whose early films in the late 60s not only addressed institutionalised racism, but deployed a highly politicised aesthetic to go with it. Intertextuality, jump cuts and split screen were all informed by his idol, Jean-Luc Godard. In fact, de Palma had declared his intention was to become America's Godard. Here is a much older, more circumspect, but equally honest de Palma being interviewed by Mark Cousins for Scene by Scene.
0: No matter how radical you try to be in order to try to change the system. Capitalism has found a fascinating way of dealing with that is to make you rich. Every idea is a product in capitalism. And once it's a product, and once it's on television, once it's selling things, then it absolutely has no uh, revolutionary feeling anymore. It's just another product.
1: De Palma was the director who discovered Robert De Niro, casting him in his early films, Greetings, The Wedding Party, and Hi, Mom. By late 1972, De Niro was sharing top billing in Scorsese's Mean Streets and a short while later, as De Palma was helping Scorsese edit the film, he passed him on the script. Scorsese was immediately taken by its psychological probity and emotional honesty, but amazingly De Niro was not the first choice to play the isolated, disturbed Vietnam vet, Travis Bickle. Jeff Bridges was suggested, mainly because he was a box office name and De Niro was a relative unknown. Bridges passed, so Dustin Hoffman was approached.
0: I know enough to know that that great big dumb cowboy crap of yours don't appeal to nobody except every Jackie on 42nd Street. That's faggot stuff. You want to call it by its name, that's strictly for fags.
1: Taxi Driver finally went into production over the sweltering summer of 1975, on an extremely tight schedule of 45 days. The budget was just as severe, $1.5 million, and that curiously echoed the perils of New York City, which was facing bankruptcy. Urban decay was everywhere. Drug dealers roamed freely about the streets, and prostitution was the main business in Times Square. Although Schrader had initially envisaged a film in the austere style of his cinematic idol Robert Bresson, specifically The Diary Country Priest, A Man Escaped, and Pickpocket, when Scorsese was done with filming, it was clear that he had infused it with a variety of Florida aesthetics, running from German Expressionism, Film Noir, The French New Wave, Alfred Hitchcock, and all the while, tipping its hat to John Ford's The Searchers. Which brings us back to the B-movie that Scorsese says influenced him more than any other. Released in 1958, Murder by Contract centres around a disaffected young man, Vince Edwards, who, because he is short of money, decides to hire himself out as a contract killer and what fascinated Scorsese was the way director Irving Lerner detailed the mundane downtime of Vince's routine, where he waited in his apartment for the next assignment. Released in the spring of 1976, Taxi Driver is, for many reasons, a landmark in American film, not least of which is the way Scorsese forwarded the language of cinema. What he succeeded in doing was create a cinematic equivalent to the European existential literary tradition. For the most part, American cinema in the 1960s was a very state affair, with Hollywood only begrudgingly and belatingly addressing the enormous social, cultural and political changes sweeping across the continent. Instead, cineasts such as Scorsese looked to Europe for inspiration. He found it in the like of Jean-Luc Godard and the French New Wave. But where Godard was deconstructing cinematic grammar in order to make a political point, Scorsese adopted some of his techniques to provide psychological insight into his lead character, Travis Bickle. The way Scorsese did this was fourfold. Camera movement, editing, the use of slow motion, and an often underappreciated soundscape created by Frank E. Warner, who would later work with Scorsese again on Raging Bull. Consider the sequence where Travis inexplicably takes Betsy on a date to watch a pornographic film. At first, Betsy, played by Sybil Shepard, was mildly curious, but after a few seconds inside the cinema, she had had enough and walked out. Days later, Travis tries calling her. As Travis pleads with her, the camera tracks right away from him and ends up looking down an empty corridor. Scorsese says this was the very first shot he came up with for the film. Traditionally, in Hollywood films, any movement was motivated by the actor's movement. But here, Travis doesn't move, so when the camera does, its motivation is emotional. It is as if either the filmmaker, or perhaps the audience, are so embarrassed for Travis, and his inability to accept how offended Betsy is, Scorsese, or we, couldn't look, and we had to move away. Another technique that Scorsese refined was the use of slow motion. Since 1955, when Akira Kurosawa used it in The Seven Samurai, and then Arthur Penn in 1967 with Bonnie and Clyde, and Sam Peckinpah in 1969 with The Wild Bunch, slow motion was confined to moments of violence. And in that way, it was used to rupture the sense of continuity. But just as he had done with a tracking shot, Scorsese redefined its meaning. He personalised it so that it came to reflect Travis's emotional state. Time and again we see Travis watching the people in the city and time and again Scorsese inserts a slow motion shot to again rupture the sense of continuity but only to underscore how disassociated Travis is from the people and the city around him. It is as if he literally moves, thinks and feels at a different rate to everyone else. And that different rate is not real. It's not fantasy either. It's phantasmic oracle. The third style pertains to editing, and specifically to the jump cut. For decades, continuity editing was a basic tenet of film language. But when Jean-Luc Godard burst onto the scene in 1960 with Abu de Souf*, he used the jump cut to deconstruct film language, and, as he saw it, expose film as being a tool of Western, capitalist and cultural imperialism. Scorsese had already been using jump cuts from as early as his student films, such as It's Not Just You, Marie, But never for political purposes. By interrupting the time continuity, Scorsese shows the irregularity of Travis's mind. The jump cut represents a mind coming apart. And finally, there is a soundscape as organised by Frank E. Warner. That too is irregular at particular moments, coming and going, so that we sense what we are hearing is from Travis's position. Sometimes, Scorsese incorporates all those techniques within the one scene. And for me, there is no better example of this than the time when Travis goes to the all-night Belmore cafeteria. As he takes a seat alongside his fellow drivers, the camera tracks towards him at a low angle. He looks off to his left at some of the other patrons, namely two African-American men. The camera tracks in on them as they return his look. Unimpressed by his presence, they tap the table in irritation. And we can see that Scorsese and his director of photography, Michael Chapman, have undercranked the camera for emotional effect. The sounds seem to wash back and forth like a wave. Travis. Until we hear Travis. And finally, Travis snaps back to reality. You run all over town, do you? Ah. Taxi Driver was entered into the Cannes Film Festival and en route from Los Angeles, Schrader made sure to drop into Paris to interview Bresson. Explaining his script had been influenced by three of Bresson's films. Hearing that the finished product turned out very differently from Schrader's original vision, Bresson asked the writer whether he was disappointed. No, replied Schrader. It is a very good film and I think we will win in Cannes. He was right and Taxi Driver was honoured with the Palme d'Or. But then, some five years later, on March the 30th, 1981...
0: Here you see the president coming out now. We just have to watch. I don't know whether we can hear this or not. There it is. Shots. God. The
1: John Hinckley, a profoundly disturbed 25-year-old man, had attempted to assassinate US President Ronald Reagan. Within hours of the shooting, the FBI were at Schrader's door wanting to know had Hinckley ever been in contact with him. Schrader said no, but surmised that Hinckley would likely have kept a diary, just like Bickle and just like Bremer. He also said it was likely that Hinckley was socially inept and would probably have had limited contact with his family, just like Bickle and just like Bremer. Also, he would be sexually frustrated, just like Bickle and just like Bremer. Satisfied, the FBI left, and in their ensuing investigation, they discovered that Hinckley had developed a fixation with Jodie Foster, who had played the young prostitute Iris, over whom Travis had also fixated. In the years between the film's release and Hinckley's assassination attempt, Foster had enrolled at Yale University to study literature. Hinckley had also enrolled in the same university and for the same classes. But, unlike Bickle or Bremer, Hinckley had not kept a diary. Instead, pestering Foster with notes, poems and letters, slipping them under the door in her dormitory. He even took to calling her on the phone. But with great wisdom and fortitude, Foster avoided all contact, at which point Hinkley switched his attention to the US president in a twisted attempt to win her affection. It was as if the plot and its origins had returned to haunt the film. But here is the thing. In 2006, Schrader admitted Hinkley had contacted him. Twice via letters asking could Schrader introduce him to Foster. Assuming them to be no more than teenage fan mail Schrader binned them and never replied. All of which goes to show how deeply probing Schrader's script of self-therapy was. He had delivered a character study that was so psychologically accurate extremely isolated, deeply disturbed young men could not but identify with Bickle. But the film only really worked for them if they could recognize the screen not as their mirror, but as their own warning. In Hinckley's case, he failed to do so, and thus drifted further into festering, masochistic, narcissistic anger. But thankfully, and perhaps it is precisely because of its intense power, the taxi driver has outlasted all those near-fatal controversies.